Hey there, welcome to Sweet Saturday. We've got another bonus episode for you. This is episode number 84 of Step Family Mission Possible. This builds from episode number 83. So if you want the short version, check out Thursday's Drop, episode number 83. If you're looking for more about the many stages of grief, listen in to today's guest expert. Meet Dr. David Knapp, father of eight, grandfather of 28, teacher, and author of I Didn't Know What to Say. David has a deep desire to empower others in the grieving process. He confidently teaches others how to care for people dealing with loss. What makes David the expert in navigating grief? He's lived through so many losses. While we don't list the grief stages specifically in today's recording, David shares his story from the loss of his father in a farming accident when he was just 11 years old to blending his third family after losing his first two wives to cancer. We can hear the shock, the numbness, the denial, the panic, the questioning of how to navigate the loneliness, the complexities of raising our children. We can experience the guilt and isolation that often occur when we lose loved ones before healing comes. There are so many questions, including how to know what to say when others are experiencing loss. That's why we're so pleased to welcome Dr. David Knapp to Step Family Mission Possible. Hey there, you're listening to Step Family Mission Possible, the podcast for step families with a focus on step family couples building their legacy together. We know that blending families is hard, And your hosts, me, Jen Rogers, along with my husband, Bill, are determined to make it easier. It's time to turn Step Family Chaos into Step Family Mission Possible together, so you can stop feeling that pit in your stomach on Transition Day and start celebrating all the reasons why you are exactly in the right place right now. David, welcome to Step Family Mission Possible. So excited to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's indeed my privilege. So you are the first grief expert that we have had on the show. And when I say grief expert, I mean someone who recognizes the importance of reaching out to people who are hurting. And we know in blended families, there's a lot of hurt that kicks off the new family relationship. Can you share a little bit about that? My personal experience includes not only being a part of a blended family growing up as a result of death. My dad was killed in a farming accident and then my mom remarried. But then also my experience in blending myself was as a result of death. My first wife died my, and my second wife was a widow herself. Grief and debt and loss was, has been a major part of my experience in the blending process, whether it be as a young man in high school or my own. As a result of that, especially after my second wife died, I found myself being bombarded by so many people. Tell us, what did you learn and what's involved in that? God has given me the impact. Actually, he he actually said to me one day after my second wife died, don't hoard your lessons. So I knew I needed to step forward and be a help to other people. When you're in the middle of the hurt, it 
doesn't feel like something that you're going to share with somebody. So how did you feel when you experienced all of this loss? Maybe starting with your dad and the farming accident. Actually, I was 11 when my dad was accidentally killed. My mom had my youngest brother, who was number five in the family, a week after my dad's funeral. So we had a lot of trauma and change going on at that time, which in the Christian community in our area drew a lot of attention. And so there was actually, I believe, because of my mom's grief that I observed and participated in actually some, not a lot as a boy, but somewhat, I saw the attention needed, even the, even as a kid, the attention needed to deal with hurts and how she did dealt with it. And so it put us in the spotlight a little bit and we didn't feel isolated. We felt held up because we were a part of a strong Christian group at the church and also of an extended family that was all nearby to support us. So dealing with the loss actually became part of how we lived. I know some, there are some families, some people that they just sneak past the grief and get on with life because it hurts so much, but we actually didn't do that. And so consequently, when my first wife died of cancer, leaving me with four um, children, the youngest was 11, the oldest was uh, 16, um, actually found myself at that time, I was the president of a Bible college and had a lot of contacts of other people. And I got counsel real early in that grieving process to by another gentleman. His counsel was to lean into your grief, mm. lean into it. Wow. That's, it's easier not to do that. Mm. It's easier to try to get past it as quickly as possible. And he says, no, you want to be on the other end of your grief. You want to be whole. You don't want to be someone who's just grinning and bearing it. So I had good counsel and good advice. So whenever we, it came time for us to blend, my second wife and I to blend, she too had similar experience of grieving well with a lot of support around her. And so we would talk openly about uh, our losses and we observed, watched our kids and realized that not all eight of those kids, she had four, I had four, they were all teenagers when we got together. We kept an eye on, we realized that not each of them was handling even the loss of their parent the same. And we needed to help them or give leeway to them for that process. And part of the grieving that took place when we blended was actually the blend, because the blend also brought closure to the previous family that they had lost because their parent had died. It's called compound grief that we were dealing with, not only individually, but as, as a family. Can you take me back to the mind and heart that 11-year-old boy when you lost your dad? What were you feeling? What were you experiencing? I was, I had just gotten home whenever something serious happened across the road where my dad was working with some other men. And I knew something was wrong whenever the hired men started running and taking off. And then my uncle came to the house 
and said there had been an accident and that my dad was hurt. I My first response was I was paralyzed. I didn't know what to think. And then I was mad. I actually was doing my chores. We lived on the farm and I had to carry water. I had to cow to milk. And I remember yelling at the cow when I was milking her with that information that my dad was hurt. And then when I had finished, why he, my uncle came back to the house and said that he was gone. My mom's response was she broke down and fell on the bed and sobbed. And I began, I'd never seen anybody do that before. And so it was almost like my feelings were overshadowed by hers. And life actually, in my mind, was chaotic after that because normal and kids oftentimes find security in, in, in things being consistent and our life be turned upside down and it be, it was unnerving, but I don't, I have to admit now as an adult looking back, that 11 year old boy didn't know how to grieve. And so my, my, any grieving was just a sense of emptiness and loss. And it came in spurts, which is common for children. They grieve in spurts. But much of my realization of what I lost that day when my dad was taken in death, I actually realized more later in life and um, that I, you know, and actually felt the loss a little bit later in life. And my youngest son had a similar experience because he was 11 whenever his mom died and he he grieved as much as a got sober and cried with me whenever I had held him on my lap and told him his mommy had died but it was like years later when he was 20 early 20s married and he and his wife came back and visited his mom's grave for the first time and his wife said that Aaron dropped to the ground and just sobbed like she had just died. And that's as an adult realizing the loss that he had experienced as a child. And what kind of things were going through your mind when you made that connection that I was 11 and my son is 11 and now I'm delivering the news that I received? That day, my mind was full of details. My that's my part of my personality is details and get it done kind of a thing, and I was my mind was racing through because I had four kids to tell that their mommy had died. I told them as a group, and then I met went in the bedroom there each other room and talked to them individually because I knew that they needed to have the freedom to cry, to release that pain. And so I was, that's some of what I was thinking is how can we, how do we, what should we do here so that it's going to be the right way of handling the loss, the grief. And, and each of them handled it differently. The two older ones seemed to do better. The third born was actually didn't handle it quite as well. And the, and of course, Aaron was just, the youngest was just 11. He was only able to deal with it because children particularly under the age of 12, are emotionally not developed enough to handle the grief as much and as long as adults. And so they have to have the freedom to grieve in spurts when they can. And just because they don't have long 
sobbing spells like adults do doesn't mean they're not grieving properly. So what would you recommend to the step-parent who is in that situation where they've just recently blended and they're dealing with the loss, whether it's the loss of a parent or the loss of a parent through divorce, what would you recommend that blended parents take into consideration to acknowledge that grief? Some of it we found is having the freedom to talk about the lost individual, the parent, whether it be a mom or a dad, for them to be, for their name to be, have the freedom to be brought up at the dinner table or even in passing and lightheartedness, just having that freedom for their name to be brought up when possible, even if it's not in a loss situation, even even talking about something around the table that's lighthearted and say, oh yeah, your mom used to say that, or you know, that type of stuff. Instead of their name or their memory being blocked and taboo in general conversation, it needs to be have there needs to be the freedom for it to um, that they're still uh, they were they're still a member of the family that's lost, and they didn't do anything wrong by dying. It wasn't their fault, and so you don't hold it against them by isolating them from memory, and so you know, just having the freedom to talk about them freely, oftentimes will release that opportunity for a, a child to even say. I sure miss them. And that's a good thing whenever that's the freedom is there to express that. I know in our initial phone call, you had talked about when parents are deceased, that they can get excessive sanctification and glorification, if you will, on behalf of the kids, right. that their memory shifts a little bit and they become more and more saintly as time passes on. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, we found that when we, my second wife, Judith, and I blended after about a year, we began to notice that the parent that was, had died, suddenly they were not, no longer around. And each year that went by, they could do no wrong. They weren't there to make mistakes anymore. And, and the kids want to remember them in a positive light. And, but I'm around or my wife was around and we're making mistakes on a daily basis. And so we did notice that was the case, that there was a few references or even a little bit of resistance. My dad or my mom would have never done that or my dad would never have done that. When the fact is that they did, but they had properly forgotten those parts of their, their parents' study and only we were remembering the good things. And we tried not to squelch that any more than we had to because we want, wanted their memories to remain positive. But yes, be, because the, uh, in, when it comes to de- blending because of death, there's a positive and a negative to that. The positive is there's closure. That, that spouse or that parent is no longer <clears throat> around to either interfere or cause trouble or be a factor in the thing. But on the other side, they're not, they're not alive to make any more mistakes. And they, they tend to be elevated just a little bit more than they would be merited. What's the one thing that you wish you would have heard or that someone could have said to you to help you when you were 11 
and to help you when you lost your first wife? I know one thing that was said to me when I was 11, I was the oldest in the family. There was four kids and one on the way. A family member said to me, this is a lot of responsibility to put on such a young boy. That really put pressure on me that I really couldn't, that would be better had that person not said that to me. You're not, you're now the man of the house and whatever. 11 year old boy really couldn't handle it. And, and because of that, in a sense, I lost some of my childhood freedoms as a 12, 13 year old boy, because I had this in the back of my mind, I'm now responsible for this family and, and yeah, so even when I was 12 and 13, I was felt responsible and I was actually mowing, going out and mowing lawns to bring food home, buy bread and put it on the table. And instead of having the freedom to be a kid, I think. But as far as what to say, one thing I found even with my own kids when their mother died was having other adults that were friends that my kids trusted and could confide in. That was a big help to my kids for, because I could not be the be all and do all in all the emotional development of all of my kids. And it was a big blessing to me and my kids for there to be other adults around them that would once in a while, put their arm around them and say, do you miss your mom today? And they could look at him with a tear and say yes. And that seemed to be a blessing that I didn't anticipate. But as far as somebody, what someone would say to me the day my wife died, I, I don't know. One of the things that I concluded, I did not know a human could hurt that bad, meaning that deeply on the inside. I saw my mom go through that, but it did. I didn't know what it mean, meant as a kid. But as an adult, when my wife took her last breath and the uncontrollable sobbing began, I had no clue that was uh, a human experience that, that I had, because I'd never experienced that. And so that was all, all new to me, the depth of pain and of that grief was. And so consequently, about I don't know, two or three weeks into the process, I was found myself wandering around the house like a kid looking for a pacifier and feeling like there's something missing here. I began to realize I need to talk to some people. I need to, what's going on here? And so I did. I knew of a few other people that had lost a spouse, most of them men, and I would call them up and arrange for, to have lunch or breakfast with them and just talk about the process to get some insight and mostly the reassurance that while I was going through was nothing unusual, but very common. <laughs> so what, I wonder what happens for people who don't have that ability or recognition. Hey, I need to actually reach out to somebody. How can we, who are aware of the situation, how can we help? someone recognized that it would be good for them to reach out? What kind of things could we... One of the things that has driven me to actually start a ministry called Grief Relief Ministries was for that very thing. I had so many people come up, particularly after my second wife died, and say, Dave, I have no clue what you're going through. I didn't even know what to say to you. And I thought, I do. I know what you could have said. And so I've... One of my 
drives in writing a book, now two books, and also creating a, an online presence and being available to even speak publicly is to help people understand both by the griever and also the those who are going to be their helpers, what the grieving experience is like. And I've had so, over the last five years, so many people comment, thank you, I now I know I'm not going crazy. And so I think, quite frankly, it's just a matter of constantly expressing, here's what it's like, here's the value. It's just like the whole thing of forgiveness. A lot of people think he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. No, he probably doesn't. But forgiveness is not for his benefit. It's for yours. The yeah. same thing is true when it comes to grieving. Grieving is not a weakness. If you cut your arm, you're going to watch it so it doesn't get infected. You're going to clean it. You're going to put a Band-Aid on it. You're going to take care of it. Your heart's broken mm -hmm. and your that needs to be tended to too. And it's that doesn't make you any less of a human or weak in any way, shape, or form. And so one of the early things that I realized was that when I look, when I viewed the subject of grief, I had believed a lot of myths about the grieving process that once I was there, immediately I realized I was wrong with this and thinking that People who grieve are weak or people who are grieve are not spiritual and people who grieve are out of control. I realized that's like saying somebody who pulled a muscle is faking it. No, they, it was real and grief is real and there's nothing and everybody grieves differently for sure. So what we can do, I believe, is just whenever it's appropriate to always be saying grief is normal talk to somebody that can help you. If you had, if you got a real bad flu case of the flu, you'd probably go to the doctor. Okay. Now you've got a heart that's got a problem that uh, get some help and just uh, constantly out there encouraging, letting people know be because thing, but is being in a position where you're grieving, you can't predict that. Usually <laughs> sometimes you can but sometimes you can't because when sudden death happens, you don't, you weren't prepared for that. And my wife and I were 41 when she died. Dying is not something that's normal for 41 year olds. And who knew what for me to plan on knowing how to grieve. Yeah, she was sick for seven years, but we always lived with hope, which is a good thing. But anyhow, so I think we who understand, like Corinthians talks about saying, that let your grief be a help to others. Mm -hmm. so the comfort that you have received, give it to others. Yeah, I know that there are several pastors who listen to the podcast. So can you share a little bit more about the course that may be helpful for them? Okay, on my web website, I have a course that's available that you can take online. It's actually eight hours uh, broken down into small snippets of about 20 minutes each that covers a vast subject matter on the grieving process. Everything from the basics to different topics uh, like grieving, uh, uh, losing the, a child, children grieving, losing a job, changing ministries, changing cultures, what it's like, even suggestions on how to help and whatever. 
and it's a course that you sign up for. It, there's a actually a small cost for that, and it's actually at the seminary level. I actually prepared that for a seminary, and they're still using it today, I believe. But anyhow, it's available there, and you can listen to it at your leisure over time if necessary. And it would be like very helpful in a vast understanding the grieving process and therefore by this understanding able to help people. Because I've had pastors come up to me after I've spoken and lean over to me and says, Dave, I have been doing funerals at this church for several years, but none of my training, none of the college I went to, a seminary I went to didn't give us any training on how to help people with grieving. Do you have anything? And the answer is yes, that's available. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. I'm curious, when your second wife died, what emotions were you experiencing? Okay, my my second wife, I actually, see my, my first wife was had cancer for seven years and finally the doctor said we need to she needs to go home now but they did indicate she they we've seen someone in this state live for seven months after getting to this point she didn't live that long she lived a a month and a half and it so it was a surprise and uh, she and i didn't talk very much about her death and it probably should have but we didn't my second wife however was she was undiagnosed. We knew something was wrong for about five years. Went to a lot of doctors. They never found anything. It was pancreatic cancer, so it was one of the most difficult to find. And so finally, whenever the cancer was identified, it was stage four, and she died three months later. During that three months, we talked about and literally grieved her death. So there was some grieving, some pain going on. I watched mm-hmm. her grieve her own death. And then, of course, I'm hurting. And I had lots of people ask me after my second wife died, was it easier or harder after your second wife died? And I have to be car- careful in how I answer that. But in reality, it was harder. It was harder because, number one, based on my experience from my first wife, I knew how bad I was going to hurt. I knew bad. I knew the depth of pain that I was in for. And that was made it a little bit more difficult where the, my, with my first wife, everything was a surprise as I went. But also after my second wife died, both she and I had experienced death. And then as a result of that, our emotions and our ability emotionally was deeper. And so quite frankly, I would say our love for each other was deeper than the love that I, my first wife and I had because of our experiences, because of our age. My first wife and I were married 20 years and our depth of love was is really good, at, but it was at the level 20-year marriage would offer. But I bring that pain into a second marriage and then we were able to love even deeper. So our love level was deeper. So the pain was actually deeper at that point, but I knew what I needed to do. I knew I needed to, again, lean into my grief. So I started documenting it. I recorded where I was, my documented my progress. I didn't expect more from my experience than 
the time allowed. For me, it was like three months significant, six months significant, nine months significant, certain levels of the grieving process. And in my mind, I allowed for that. And so when my second wife died, I responded the same way as I did my first wife. I, as soon as I realized that she was gone, saw her body, I melted to a chair and sobbed uncontrollably for a very long time and then allowed the sobbing every time the, something happened. And of course, I knew from experience that it would fade slowly. It would not be suddenly go away one day. And just by way of example, after my wife died, I sobbed probably three or four times a day. After a couple of weeks, it was down to a couple of times a day. Then after a little bit longer, it was once a day. And then eventually once a week and eventually once a month. And then at five years, it was like once a year, maybe a thing. So I knew I would be going through something like that again. And so I just accepted it. I embraced it. So at what point in time did you think you might get married again? And what fears, if any, did you have associated with I rejected the idea for the first three months, both times. However, my second wife, you'd had to know her. She's bubbly and to the point. My second wife, before she died, she says, I said, now you find a younger model this time. I want you to get married again. And <laughs> Judith, I'm not thinking like that. But no, she was in my face a couple of times. And even how about this one over here? I'm not, th- no, not talking about that right now. But by uh, each time after about the third month, and I began to realize that this hole in my soul is not permanent Um, that the day would come and I began to look around. And quite frankly, I started to ask God, okay, Lord, I'm going to rely on you for if you want me to get married again. I'm sure I believed I would. Both times I knew I would. The first time I was young and I had a family. And the second time I just knew that I would do that. So along about the third month, I began to entertain the possibility. Maybe I could start looking over my shoulder, seeing what the options might be. And of course, I didn't actually do much about it for quite a few months later. And it wasn't for me until about the ninth month where I felt emotionally whole enough to trust myself by opening up for another relationship. Now, I've talked to other people. Men sometimes begin that process a little sooner than some women. I know some women that it's two years before they even would even dream of such a thing. And others it's a year and it just varies. There's no time limit. Everybody's different. And some just decide never again. I've talked to men that it's like, Nope, not going through that. I can live happily the way I'm at. And that's fine. I'm, I just tell my own experience, but quite frankly, I talk to God a lot about my experiences my feelings and my life. And I, he tells me things. And like, whenever I first met my second wife, she came to visit the school I was teaching at. God actually said, okay, here's one, marry her. I said, what? I just met this lady. And so we took our time, went, had a year of engagement before we got married. And then my second wife, I, after nearly a year, I began looking around and I actually, we found each other on one of the Christian dating sites. And, and again, Lord, which one of these potential contacts 
should I pursue? And he gave signs and made it very clear that this lady here you need to meet. And so I did that. And what kind of reactions did you get from your kids when you were pursuing someone? The first, after my first wife died, and then my my second wife and I started dating. At first, my the kids were the kids were excited about the possibility, but then I saw about half of them fear began to creep in because they realized the change that was taking place, and some of them lost their pecking order in the family. A couple of them did, but they were all, a lot of them were the same age. The oldest one stayed the oldest and then the youngest one stayed the youngest. But they, suddenly the other ones had, the other six in the middle had a sibling the same age. And one of the challenges in that was I realized that part of my role as the father, dad, and responsible actually for the blend was all these relationships had to develop. And so I I realized early on that my, one of my roles as in the blending was to monitor every relationship in the whole blend, not necessarily to micromanage that. That was like, there was eight kids, Judith and I, so that's each one with each other and their relationship with God. That's a hundred relationships. And so my job oftentimes was to monitor them. There was, I had a couple surprises, things I missed, but it also involved their personality. So I would have to, I try to accept or deal with them based on their personality. I had to watch each one have a fight with each of the other ones to establish their personal relationship and not interfere. And that was not always easy because I had two girls and my wife had four boys. My girls actually held their own, but still it was, I had to watch it happen without micromanaging it. Early on, I was realizing that as I monitored each relationship, there was thing, obvious things that I could do. Sometimes encourage, sometimes discipline, sometimes let it go. That's not important for that person right this minute. And it was a, a challenge because I realized going into that, that I my relationship with each one of them was very vital. And I needed to work on that and build it. There's a lot of things that we did to create the memories. It was not easy, but the first year we were together, we actually took what I would call six mini vacations, meaning long weekends. And it was expensive, but vital because what those mini vacations did, they, it created memories, it get opportunity for there to be memories because we had to concentrate. We had to we didn't have a whole lifetime ahead of us. We had to beef it up right quick. And that was one of the things that that we did to, to speed up or to solidify the blend. And I would say that was one thing that helped make it more and more successful in that. And I didn't realize how big of an impact that had on our blending success until about, I don't know, four years later, because that first year, 
we were taking pictures like crazy. I am an amateur photographer and I always had a camera handy. And so I, we, I created a photo album of all those vacations and everything we did that first year and had it available in the house. When I saw the younger ones, when they were in high school, bring their friends home and pull that photo album off of the shelf and show their friends and say, this is our family. I knew that there, I realized the success that that had created in the family. The, the relationship is key here. And so there was some, if I could say compromising, I, I maybe had to do a little bit. I remember one of my kids rebelling because of that compromising. And the subject in this particular case was the type of music that was allowed in the house. My second wife's boys had not had much guidance in that. She wasn't able to do that. So they brought some of their music that I wouldn't allow before. And suddenly I didn't say anything about it. And my kid says, Hey, what's going on? The rules all changing here. I knew that that battle was minor compared to the big picture. Yeah, I could not do anything about that particular, create a rule there because the relationship wasn't built yet with them because they're like 16. And for me to say, okay, you're not allowed to listen to that anymore would have done nothing but cause rebellion. It was more important that I gain a, a relationship than I fight that particular battle. So if couples are getting ready to blend, what advice would you give the spiritual leader of the household? I'll tell you another story. One time my wife needed the aid of a chiropractor. A friend of ours recommended this particular chiropractor. And so we went to him and it turned out that he was in the throes of blending families. There were six kids involved in his blend when he realized our story. And he looked at me and he asked me that question. What would you tell me? I started with the part about monitoring relationships. I says, your role begins, of course, in not being a fake. You have, because your new family, they're going to be watching you and you yourself have to remain consistent with your walk with God. You can't suddenly become less or more than what you, who you are. Your relationship with the Lord needs to be constant because I've known some that actually and put their heels in and feel like, now I've got this big responsibility. I have to be more of a tyrant. No, that's not, no, that's not who you were. And that's not a definition of how God has been working in your life. You need to stay constant. And then the second thing I pointed out to him was the value of monitoring the relationship of everybody in the family, including each one's walk with God and be available or even guiding whether directly or indirectly, that particular person's relationship with the Lord. And, and along with that, of course, includes praying specifically for that particular member of the family, what their need is, what their walk with the Lord is, and what needs where they're headed. And by being that specific, because you're monitoring it, you'll find yourself realizing results in the family atmosphere, for sure. And I guess if I ask you what the third thing was, it probably would be rituals and creating those traditions right from the get-go. Is that right? Exactly. And and it, it, this is where the husband and wife communication is very vital. Anytime you have a, a second marriage, 
the tendency for both is to assume new, assume the same. Okay, now I'm married again. I'll be able to get back to this. No, it's the that's really not how it works. Both have to realize it. It's similar to even when you have a husband and wife that the marriage has fallen apart. And one of them says, I just want things to be back the way they were. And my response to that is, no, you don't. That's how I got to where you are now. You have to start over. And so you have to have new. You're creating a new family, so there needs to be some new. So it, the word compromise is too loose of a word. Okay, you, you have to communicate what would be something that we're both common with. For example, both of our family, both Judith and I, had a quote-unquote ritual that when everybody's home, that everybody sat down and ate at the table together. None of this coming through cafeteria style. The only meal that was cafeteria style was sometimes breakfast. Everybody sat down at the same time and had a meal. And both of our families had done that before. So it was an easy blend and became a very important one. That's just a simple thing. Another one had to do with, of course, holidays, learning how you celebrate holidays and what's expected of those kind of things. And again, that's where our communication was similar because we had some holidays, but at the same time, having the freedom to maybe do things different. Yeah, open communication between the husband and wife on some of those issues is vital. I'd even recommend, and I didn't do this a whole lot, even on some situations, having, we had family meetings and would discuss things as a group. And that was usually chaotic because I had so many, but, and I didn't do it a lot, but I've known of many, many that they found that to be very beneficial for the kids to at least feel like they had a, a somewhat of a say, even though dad's a boss, they still had somewhat of a say and they could be heard. Yeah, that actually is something. So we have memories of family meetings. And when we would call them, sometimes you could see that the kids would cringe because they were concerned about what was going to come up, no matter what we did, whether it was ice cream sundaes that went along with the meetings or not. But it definitely did help. We had a round table, so we all got around the table and we could see each other and just create space to process some of the challenges that they were experiencing. So we definitely recommend that in our coaching with couples that you do sit down and you do have those family meetings. And we also recommend the meals as well. Even if nobody's really talking to each other or they're irritated with each other, they're physically in their presence. And we know when you're in the presence of other people, there's definitely power in being present together. So what's your favorite thing about blending, would you say? One of my, the favorite things looking back about the whole blending process is the variety of life that it brought to me. I've often realized I'm pretty happy with the variety of outlook, the variety of lessons with people that I've experienced and how versatile I can be because of my experience. And I often wonder, look back and think, had this not happened, would I have some of the same freedoms of acceptance of others or other ways that I have now had I not had this experience. And sadly, I possibly would not have because see, now I'm actually in my my fourth family. I grew up in a family the first 20 years. I have family with my first wife for about 20 years. I had a family with my 
second wife for about 20 years. And then now I've been married eight years with my third wife. And all of those experiences have broadened my understanding, my awareness, my acceptance. And I feel richer because of that. As you were saying that, I was remembering how you had thanked your stepdad for how he had parented you. But that may not be as good as it sounds. Can you share a little bit about your experience with your stepdad? Not everybody has the same success blending families. After my dad was killed in a farming accident, my three years later, my mom remarried and she remarried. She married a 48-year-old bachelor who was an only child who had lost his dad when he was very young and he was unsaved before they met. And so my mom and I led him to Christ. Six months later, they got married. And so now he's the dad of five kids. And then my mom had three more after they got married. His understanding of how to parent, how to be a good husband, and even how to be a Christian was all huge monster learning curves. To be honest, he failed a lot. There was a lot of things that he did that was would was didn't turn out well. But I'm observing, and I'm the oldest and have the closest to him, and he trusted me, and I was a buffer between him and the younger ones while he was learning, particularly the first year. And so I learned a lot of things, actually, about how to be or how not to be a good stepdad. And I did learn several things on here's, this is not a good way of being a good stepdad. And anyhow, later, after I became a stepdad myself, a few years into it, he and I were talking alone and I decided, you know, I, I, and I try to practice honoring your parents, even up until they pass away, giving honor where honors do. And I would do that with him. And so one day I actually thanked him. I said, I just wanted to say, I'm a stepdad now. And I want to thank you for the lessons I learned on being a stepdad. And I stopped with that. I did, and he didn't ask any details. And I was glad because some of the things I learned from him was how not to do it. So I had an advantage there because of that, you might say, and being a stepdad and it also made me not be afraid of doing it because it was not a foreign concept to me you have shared some really beautiful insights into blending families and managing loss as well so we certainly appreciate you joining us today where can people find you the best way would be on the webpage it's griefreliefministries.com there's contact information there as well as links to for the books that we've got available and the course that's there. And there's a blog there with discussions about loss and family. My email, grief relief ministry, singular, grief relief ministry at gmail.com. Okay, great. I'll go ahead and I'll put those links in the show notes too. So thank you so much. We really appreciate having you. All right. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Anytime I can help. Hey, friends. Be sure to join the Facebook group so you can have direct one-on-one conversations with David and all the other experts who have been on the show. They're in the Facebook group waiting to hear from you and help you move from where you are to where God is calling you to be. All right, family, catch you next time.